0: It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. The holidays are known for being the most stressful time of the whole year. And it's a fact that the best way to relieve stress is to exercise.
1: Unfortunately, but he will be back next time. However, we have a special show today featuring the ghosts of Spirit Quest past. From 2019, Ken DeCosta from Rise Up Paranormal discussing urban legends, ghost myths, and debunking. Followed by Jason Robito from SpiritQuest 2014 with a presentation on Ouija boards. And in between these two intriguing presentations, we'll hear from the Teller of Curious Tales. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the
0: show. Uh, Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Ken DeCosta. I am with a group called Rise Up Paranormal. We're based in Rhode Island. Uh, Personally, I have been doing this stuff for about 45 years now. Um, Now, hold on to your hats. We started doing this before there were cell phones, the internet, and Facebook. I know. These were medieval times back then but somehow we got through it. I think we probably did more as kids doing this to scare ourselves than anything that happened out there. Today I want to exercise my right if you read your flyers as a disclaimer. Speakers and topics are subject to change. That would be me today. Now originally I was going to come in here and do something on first responders but since I committed to this there have been 87 shows on cable TV about paranormal 911, paranormal emergency, haunted hospitals and I think we've all had enough of that. They've told the stories, there aren't any more. Thank you for coming today. <laughs> so what I decided to do is something else that piqued my interest and that's legends. I consider myself first and foremost to be a researcher. I am not a ghost hunter. I absolutely hate that title. It's it's a Hollywood creation. I am a paranormal investigator, it just sounds cooler, right, you know? Now, I assume that a lot of people in here follow up and do the same thing, have investigated places look into this, and that's your interest in it. History is very important to me. Some people it's not, but to me it is, because I love it so much. And I think it gives us some kind of a blueprint into any location we're going into. You make a plan. The plan can go poof in a minute but at least you have some kind of bearing on what's going on one of the things that we encounter a lot are legends and we all know that in every legend there really is a grain of truth somewhere but as it's told and retold pretty soon it grows arms, legs, feet, hands and it becomes something that uh, we don't recognize in the first place so I want to talk a little bit about that today and toward the end get into a couple of locations iconic locations that I kinda wanna don't wanna poke holes in so much as give you an example of how legends sometimes don't make meet up with facts um... this is not to say that these places are not haunted and people don't have experiences there because I believe they have some of them are very credible but I think we have to follow What history tells us, what's documented. So, if you don't mind, I'm going to, because I threw this together at the last second. You should, Steve read like a narrative on this, so I can have my notes. Okay, urban legends. Usually, how they grow is they're passed along by people that we have implicit trust in. My mother told me that a friend of hers told her that this is true. Urban legends now, in this date and time, pardon me while I reach over, I'll give you the textbook version, an often lurid story or anecdote that's based on hearsay and widely circulated as true. Now, the details may change to meet the times. The horse and buggy from centuries ago suddenly become BMW. You know, we've heard urban legends. We've heard about the driver behind you who's flashing the lights on and the girl's trying to escape him thinking it's a crazed killer when, in fact, he pulls her over and says, the crazed killer is in your back seat. I was trying to warn you. Okay, a lot of these are parables or cautionary tales, and it's something that we're going to get into, but they do serve a purpose. So they're updated to keep track with contemporary times. And you can learn a lot about Urban and modern culture coming from these type of stories. There are some that are based on real incidents and in fact they're so powerful that sometime in the 70s Procter and Gamble had a logo that somehow people said had some kind of satanic symbolism in it. Okay? And it was so powerful that worried about their bottom line they actually changed their logo because the story started to circulate so much and people started, you know, with protest signs and, you know, wow. Satan, you know, so if you bought Procter and Gamble, so good luck with you. Um, a lot of times we live in a very dangerous, capricious world and this reminds us of how fragile life is and how dangerous it can be and it also stops us from maybe doing some things that we shouldn't be doing. The basis of an urban legend some examples of how these are spread okay word of mouth they're passed down usually the original legend resembles nothing like what's being told after decades but right now I guess social media and the internet stick out now if you go to YouTube you can learn how to change the brakes on your car, and a few clicks later, you're into some type of creepy pasta. Is anybody familiar with that term? Creepy pastas are stories that are told by readers, that are submitted, that ost- ostensibly something happened to them or somebody that they knew. And one is more grisly and grotesque than the next. Reddit is another, suddenly, a source of these things, because you can learn how to make a chocolate cake. And a few clicks later, there's an axe-wielding maniac in your hometown. So these are all passed along. And in an age of social media, we're bombarded with them, and so are our children. Okay, about 1968, the term started appearing. Urban legend. And in 1981, a man named John Harold Brumwald. He was a professor of English at the University of Utah, published a book called Vanishing Hitchhikers and Other Urban Legends, okay, and he wrote a series of them, and it was done in good humor, and it was done, you know, just to tell a story, but then these things started to grow a life of their own. Now, some of these things date back to early cultures, Native American culture, so forth and so on. But a lot of them reflect our culture right now. So they're commonly updated. And you can see these on social media. Refute them at your own risk, which is what I'm trying to do today. Don't hate me on this. Because obviously if you start questioning Ouija boards and table tipping and different stories related to them, they will come for you and they will come for you hard because yes but I had an experience of a Ouija boy you can't tell me and again my purpose is not to say these things have not happened it just means that we need to step outside ourselves a little bit and take a look at the origins of these things before we jump into them with both feet okay so here's some examples every state in the Union from Resurrection Mary to the red-headed hitchhiker of Route 44 has their story of the vanishing hitchhiker. I'm not going to run all these down. But uh, Crybaby Bridge, there's usually a mother who for some reason throws her infant over the side that drowns. And people go over the bridge now hear the infant crying. It could be because she was pregnant out of wedlock and was ashamed, whatever the story may be. The hook man, of course we know the hook man on the date and then they get home, the couple gets home and there's a hook hanging on the door, et cetera and so forth. Spook lights, vampires from where we're, Andrew and I are from and Keith, Rhode Island vampires, hello, Sarah, Mercy and Nellie, we're on a first name basis, <laughs> Bloody Mary, You all know, Bloody Mary, you know, usually at any pajama party with young teens, this is a must. Spin the bottle, Bloody Mary, it's got to be done, it's the law. (laughs) So you'll see Slender Man down in the corner there. Now, Slender Man originated by a bunch, couple of guys who decided to take inanimate objects like tables and chairs, Photoshop them, digitally into these spindly arm things. Suddenly Slender Man becomes an entity. Okay? So serious that not very long ago a couple of young ladies, early teens actually murdered a classmate of theirs and when they were asked it's like well we were paying homage to Slenderman. So I'm not here to sound alarms, but these things kind of tend to take on a life of their own. One wonders, and I have, if somehow we create what's called a tulpa, where in our collective consciousness we can focus so much on an entity that may or may not be real that we actually bring it into our physical reality, whether it's psychologically or as an object or or a physical person. Mothman. I like Mothman. Okay, monsters and boogeymen. Moralistic and cautionary tales. Urban legends do serve a purpose. They keep people in line. They stop you from doing things or trying things that you might do that maybe you shouldn't. Okay, how many people here have ever been told by someone, usually your mom, do not go into the woods, there's a monster out there. Thank you, thank you there are cliffs there are sinkholes there are animals and you're placing yourself in danger it's not quite enough to explain to a young kid well you could fall off a cliff because the first thing we do as kids is go climb the ledge Okay, some of us you know i've heard of kids jumping off roofs with a towel on their back pretending they're superman <coughs> <Hi. Me. laughs> Don't go down in the basement, there's a monster down there. Actually, there's paint, turpentine, a furnace, and different things. So it's easier to scare the hell out of somebody than it is to reason with all of us sometimes. The boogeyman comes to mind, and we talked a little bit about how cultures change. In our world, a boogeyman now could be not so much the person who lives under your bed. It could be a terrorist. It could be the AIDS virus. It could be roving gangs, you know, and I'm not trying to be political here, but fear is a great motivator. Fear can control you, and if we can spread enough fear, pretty soon you fall into line. And that's what all this is about, okay? So, moving right along, the college campus, prime territory for urban legends. All right, let's talk about three that are common. A co-ed who hung herself in her room co-ed slash none depending on right pregnant with child by one of her professors or a boy at the college who renounces her wants nothing to do with it in shame she takes her own life what is the moral of the story do not have promiscuous unprotected sex okay Knife-wielding maniac on campus or in the general area, preying on couples or people that are alone. The moral of the story: safety in numbers. Don't go wandering around the campus. Okay. Um, the third one, which I'm going to have to check on here. Bear with me. Okay, that's good. Okay. Coed practicing the black arts. Goes off by herself, alienated from the rest of the student population, locks herself in her room, conjuring spirits. She's usually not heard of from a few days and is found dead in the room, sometimes in a pool of blood, which, no matter what you do, you can't get up off the floor. Okay? So, what's the... What's the parable? Assimilate into the culture. Don't be iconoclastic. Don't be an individual. Don't go practice your own thing. Hang out, party with us, be one of the group. Assimilate yourself into the culture here. Secondary is don't mess with the black arts, of course. On college campuses, you'll see that these stories are usually passed down from the upperclassmen to the incoming freshmen. Because they were told, we pass it on, and pretty soon we create a culture here of everybody fitting in where they're supposed to. Okay? Okay. First we want to talk about a legend. This guy has been on television and in our consciousness for well over a century. The Jersey Devil. Here's the story. A woman named Deborah Leeds, called Mother Leeds, gave birth to 12 children. In her 13th pregnancy, 13th, for some reason, this woman is (laughs) reported to say, oh, let this one be a devil, just to break it up a little bit. Okay? Why a mother would say that is not important to the story. Don't ask questions. But she claims that... um, she wanted this child to be a devil. So, the day of the birth comes, a midwife comes in, they're in a cabin out in the Pine Barrens of New Jersey, very desolate area. The baby is born, comes out with the head of a horse, hoofs, a tail, wings, comes out, screams, immediately kills the midwife, flies around the room, zips up the chimney out in the woods. we got to get this thing to this day it is said to exist so apparently it's also immortal so it's got that going for it as well now there are reports of children being killed by this creature and there are reports of an exorcism except the problem with an exorcism is that the Pine Barrens were settled by Quakers who don't do exorcisms they don't believe in it okay but yet the story goes on so I want to give you the origins of the Jersey Devil. Now, you might recognize the guy on the right. That's Benjamin Franklin. Kite, key, electricity, yeah, that guy. The guy on the left, you might not. His name is Daniel Leeds. He arrived from England to Burlington, New Jersey in 1677. Okay, he was also a Quaker. Now, he settled into Great Egg, New Jersey which became known as Leeds point which is where that's ground zero for the Jersey devil I so he also had another interest in writing so he started creating an almanac called the Leeds Almanac and in this he started talking about magic and astrology and angels and the devil and all these things that the Quakers wanted no part of. In fact, what happened was he was called to the next Quaker meeting with the intention of apologizing, which he did and says, okay, I will back off a little bit. I understand your point and, you know, maybe we can reach a compromise. But a decision was already made at that meeting, so they gathered up every copy of his almanac and burned it and destroyed it this infuriated Leeds, who said well if we're going to go about it that way I'm going to continue to print it and in fact he got one of the early most famous printers a guy named William Bradford who was actually printing this for him so he decided no I'm going through with this and it became somewhat lucrative eventually Um, One thing that's also important He was a crown supporter He was not part of the revolution He was very much pro-king Pro-Britain And eventually he turns the business Over to his son, Titan Titan leads Titan takes possession Of the printing and writing And on the masthead he decides to put the Leeds family seal now you'll notice there are three sort of wing like creatures there these are called wyverns okay and if you look at them they do resemble what people describe as the Jersey Devil okay now in 1732 Benjamin Franklin he was kinda like Edison It's like that's a really good idea I think I'm gonna steal that (laughs) okay so he comes along and sees a lucrative business and decides I'm getting into the almanac business and starts writing about astrology and magic and science and astronomy and all of these things but he goes one step further he decides to discredit Titan for his own purposes it's like buy this and not this He considers it to be kind of in fun, whereas Titan Leeds is dead serious about this. You're cutting into my business, and this is what you're doing to me. So in that humorous vein, Franklin starts writing about astrology and predicts on October 17th of 1733, Titan Leeds will die. Just made it up. Threw it out there, which... um, did not make Titan Leeds very happy, and in fact, he went a bit further. These are some of the things that Franklin wrote about Leeds. He's too well-bred to use any man so indecently and so scurrilously, meaning that this can't be Titan Leeds that's writing this. It's got to be the incarnation of the devil himself, because Titan Leeds comes from a good upbringing. He's a good kid. He wouldn't do something like this. Ha ha. Goes further. He received much abuse from the ghost of Titan Leeds. So what Franklin is saying on October 17th, as predicted, Titan Leeds did die, but his ghost is still running that paper and picking on me. Again, this is all satire, but people are like, they're aghast by this stuff. And thirdly... Honest Titan, deceased, was raised from the dead and made to abuse his old friend, Franklin. Again, very tongue-in-cheek. Titan Leeds is losing his mind at this point. Okay. Um, So, I mean, you had Quaker rivalries. You had almanac wars. And one other thing about Daniel Leeds, his first wife died in England. The second gave birth, but both mother and child died in childbirth, sadly. His third wife had eight children. His fourth, there's no record of it. So now you already see lots of kids, big family. You have Benjamin Franklin poking fun. You have the masthead. You have the Leeds family. You have all of this stuff. So. Does that mean that people in New Jersey are not hearing and seeing things? No, I'm not suggesting that at all. But again, when we look at legend versus reality, if you want to go into the Pine Barrens and you hear something weird, just know that, I don't know how many people are going to go, nobody, right? Okay, Um, just know where the origins of this legend came from. Okay, so we hear it all the time, the Leeds family, Mother Leeds, you know. Uh, It was actually a future father of our country who just decided to exact his pound of flesh. So, second location I want to talk about. This place. Another iconic American haunted location. Okay. The Myrtles Plantation, St. Francisville, Louisiana. Some background, if you please. You've probably heard this before. Bear with me. A man named Clark Woodruff uh, decides to open an academy down there. He's going to teach science, math, English. He's a professor. He's also studying law. Pretty upstanding guy, very intelligent. He falls in love with one of his students, Sarah Mathilda Bradford. Okay, Her father is a judge. He lives in this place. Eventually, Sarah and Clark move in here. Okay now she has two children two daughters is pregnant with a third during her pregnancy he enters into an affair with a slave on the property named Chloe now Chloe has no interest in this but it's better than working in the fields, so she decides to tolerate this until Clark Woodruff decides that He's become bored with her, takes a different lover. She is terrified that he no longer has any use for her. She'll be put out to the fields. So she takes to eavesdropping on conversations, hoping not to hear her name mentioned. And eventually she's caught by Mr. Woodruff, who has punishment, takes a knife, cuts off her ear. Okay, that'll teach you to listen to our conversations. To hide the scar, she begins wearing a green turban. She concocts a plan. She says, here's what I'm going to do. I am going to let them know that I am indispensable. I am invaluable. They need me. So as the story goes, she bakes a birthday cake for the oldest daughter, and it's served after dinner. Mr. Woodruff does not partake in the cake, but the mother... And the two daughters do. In making the cake with the flour, the eggs, the sugar, she mixes in and crumbles oleander leaves, which can make someone violently ill or in heavy doses can actually poison you and kill you. She mixes them in there with the plan that when they get sick, I'll take care of them. I'll show Mr. Woodruff that I'm invaluable. He needs me. It's better than being sent out there. The cake is served, Mr. Woodruff has none. The mother daughters have a slice, within hours they fall violently ill. Chloe tends to them but suddenly becomes horrified that she overdid the dosage. So the mother, the two daughters end up dying. Uh, When the rest of the slaves found out about this, they went in the house, grabbed Chloe dragged her outside because they were afraid of retribution on their own part because Woodruff was angry about this, hung her, then cut her body up, threw it into the river. That's the story of Chloe. Now, you've probably seen this picture a gazillion times. And here's the obligatory red circle that we always use in the paranormal, just in case you can't see what we're talking about. (laughs) Hey, we're professionals, we know what we're doing So you see a figure here who's taken by a guest And at the time a woman named Tita Moss and her husband had purchased the Myrtles Plantation They'd heard about the hauntings and things like that So if you can see as the blow up there You see what appears to be a woman, possibly with a turban on her head Translucent, you can see the clapboards right through her This is Chloe This proves that her ghost is haunting the Myrtle's plantation. Definitive proof. Not only that, but there's something else in this picture that a lot of people don't pay attention to. Up on the roof, there appears to be two figures. You see some heads and shoulders. Immediately, this is like, and there's the two children. They're with Chloe who poisoned them for eternity, and they all haunt the place. Problem. Tita Moss, because she would heard so much of this, took the original picture, sent one copy to National Geographic and another to a local digital agency and said, good on her, by the way, I want this verified because this is in the papers, it's circulating, I don't want to be thrown into a hoax, so good for her. National Geographic, by the way, said, well, we can't really find anything that's been altered in this. However, two clowns at the digital agency who were aware of the legend thought it would be kind of cool if they inserted those two figures on the roof. When Tita looked at the original and then looked at what came back, she immediately saw that there had been some hanky-panky going on here. I challenge you to find the original photo because I looked for it just to show it to you this is so highly circulated that I didn't have enough years left in my life to go through the internet and find the, um, the unaltered photo. So already you're starting to see that uh, maybe not is all there that meets the eye. Oh, 17-ish. Oh, uh, the, oh the photo. The, this photo is like in the 80s. Late 70s, early, I was just going to say like 1731. You all would have looked at me like, yeah, right. When the digital camera was first invented, late 1700s. Okay, so let's look at facts. Clark Woodruff was a philanderer and had many affairs. The truth is he was a soldier, a teacher, and devoted to his wife. He never remarried after her death. Legend number two. He and Sarah Matilda had two daughters, she was carrying a third. They had three, Cornelia Gale, the other one was a boy named James, and she was pregnant with Mary Octavia at the time. Number three, Sarah and her two young daughters were murdered by poisoning. Sarah contracted yellow fever and died in 1823. Cornelia and James sadly died more than a year later of the same disease which was very prevalent in the southern states especially. Mary Octavia lived into her 70s. Woodruff was shot and killed at the plantation. No, he died of natural causes with his, at his daughter Mary Octavia's house. He eventually moved in with her. Chloe, or Cleo, in some versions, was a house slave for the Woodruffs. There is no record of anyone named Chloe or Cleo that ever stayed at that plantation, and this is from the records in St. Francisville, Louisiana. At the time, in the 1800s already, we were starting to push into census areas. Now, you could list maybe 100 years, I had 17 slaves, good enough for me. But then we got to the point if you were living in the home and serving as a domestic, you would have to be listed as people who are occupying the dwelling. And what's the big deal? It wasn't like, I want to hide my slaves. Everybody had slaves. You just put, well, you know, there's Chloe, there's Ted and Biff or whoever. I mean, to make light of it, it's not you know, that kind of subject, but nonetheless, there's no record of a Cleo or Chloe that ever existed, yet if you go to Myrtles, They will tell you this story. If you watch Ghost Hunters or Ghost Adventures or Ghost on the Road or whatever, they will tell you the story of Chloe to this day. Okay? I've actually looked into this. I I actually did. I said, eh, we'll see. They almost expected it down there. It's like, no, you're like, ooh, you're the first one who's ever asked, but we don't have a record of it. There were at least 10 murders on the property. No, there was one murder. A man named William Winter, who, get this story, is teaching Sunday school in the house. Now, he was a subsequent owner. You know, the Woodruffs, they're pretty much out of the picture. He's teaching Sunday school. He hears a voice outside calling his name, interrupts his class, walks outside, and an unknown assailant, for whatever reason, we don't know, until the cold case, unsolved, shoots him on the porch where he dies. Okay, the only murder. Clark Woodruff was never murdered on the property, but there was one, not 10, one, Mr. poor Mr. Winter. <clears throat> now, the other part about this story, Mr. Winter's story that you'll hear from them is that he staggered in the house, tried to make it up the stairs, God only knows why, died on the 17th stair to this day footsteps are heard coming into house climbing the stairs when they get to the 17th stair they stop depending on what version there's also blood there again like the coed. that no matter how hard they scrub you can't get it out okay so Jersey Devil Myrtles Plantation not picking on them because believe me there are thousands of these stories out there that just got repeated They're on television, they're in the media, they're in our public conscious, and this is what we go with. Okay, this is not to say the Myrtles Plantation is not haunted. Okay, there's been some credible evidence to suggest that something is there. There's a lot of trauma, there's slavery, a lot of things going on there. Perhaps Mr. Winter himself still haunts the place, so no, it's not to, you know burst anybody's bubble or to call anybody a liar, although eh, I have a, you have, define liar to me. If you know better, see, that's something different. But I understand, it's a business, and they're like that all over the country, okay? They really are. But we, as investigators, whoever does this stuff, we know that you have to follow the story. I'm not, if I ever have the pleasure of going there, I'm not gonna waste a lot of time on Chloe, asking Chloe to say something to me or something like that. I'm gonna move past that into maybe a smaller, more focused area on what is actually happening there. Because we have a tendency to do that in the paranormal. We embrace everything. You can't discount everything. But once you learn better, you have to put that aside and let's get to the heart of the matter not the hundred things that may be explainable otherwise but those one or two things that are just kind of like I got nothing for you and that's what we got to focus on Okay? I did better than Steve I brought this in even quicker (laughs)
2: listen
0: thank you thank you thank you
1: I the teller of curious tales open my book once again and bring you strange and unusual stories true stories stranger than any fiction ever written. Listen. The most fantastic of all strange beliefs is one that is still prevalent all over Europe. The belief in werewolves. A werewolf is a man or woman who can change into a wolf at will whenever the lust to kill comes upon them. And while in this animal form praise upon both man and his domestic beasts. Millions of people subscribe to this belief and their faith has been bolstered by the thousands of convicted and self-confessed werewolves. The scientists call such people lycanthropists. In the 16th century incredible stories of strange monsters inhabiting the deep forests around Bescanon in France seeped into the outside world. According to these tales, packs of wolves as big as horses were killing the stray cattle and even those humans who dared enter the forest alone and unarmed. All manner of people declared they had seen these beasts. Cattle were not allowed to graze unwatched. Children dared not leave the environs of the village for the fear of being caught by these ravenous brutes. The disappearances were so numerous and the beasts of prey so seldom seen that the townspeople were saying, These are no wolves. This is the work of werewolves. The resentment of the villagers and the peasants grew until they formed the equivalent of a modern posse with sticks staves and scythes they set out to hunt these mythical animals after 3 days of intensive search they returned to Bescannon with 3 hairy beasts that vaguely resembled men wild and vicious they fought like animals they were taken to Dijon and thrown into the castle dungeon. After being starved into submission, they were dragged before the magistrate. Since they spoke only in a strange language which no one could understand, they could be questioned only by signs. According to the ancient records, the result of this questioning amounted to the following. The prisoners admitted being in league with the devil who had given them wolves for wives. One admitted to killing a small boy he had captured, tearing him to pieces and eating him. The other two admitted to murdering at least five children. Who were these three? What were they? Is it possible that they were the remnants of some prehistoric race of man? who managed somehow to survive in the deep forests? Or were they what they claimed to be? Werewolves? The gong strikes. My time is up. The teller of Curious Tales has closed his book. Join me on my next visit, when I'll bring you other stories, curious tales, strange beliefs. Until then, Sleep tight. <laughs>
3: I think it was like '87. when I, uh, We were spending the weekend at my aunt's house, and being little kids, me and my sister, uh, she said, "Let's go to let's go to the store and buy a game." And this isn't where you think this isn't going where you think it is. Um, we went to the store and we went to the game section. It was Candyland, Monopoly. So my aunt said, Oh, I wonder if they have any. Hi, welcome. I wonder if they have any Ouija boards. And I never heard of the word. It sounded like something, yeah, like a squeegee. I thought it was something yeah, you clean yeah, your laundry or your windows. So I'm like, What's a Ouija board? She goes, Oh, it's supposed to be this thing that you talk to ghosts. And back then, I was a little sci-fi freak. I love horror movies. What? We talk to ghosts? What are you talking about? So we looked, and they didn't have any. We were at Cowboy outdoor. We, uh, we, she didn't have a Ouija board. Now back then there was no internet, so it was really hard for me to you know, find out what the heck is a Ouija board. I I had my mother, and, or myself, I called every store up and down the East Coast. All the toy stores, all the department stores, Salem, Mass. No one had any Ouija boards. And it actually wasn't until a few years later that I found out the reason no one had any Ouija boards was because of the movie The Exorcist. Not that they were banned. But I think there was a lot of baggage, some of them in Toys R Us, when you see the exorcist, oh yeah, your kid's just gonna throw up pea soup everywhere and stabbing people with crucifixes. So it got a really bad rap. So it was off the shelves for a long time. Maybe about four or five years after that, I remember I was in Bradley's and it was right around Christmas time, and I, I, went, I went down to the toy section, and I remember I saw this box, Right here, um, and I'm thinking W E E J A. I'm like,
2: what
3: is that? A, a French cookie tray? I I had I thought it was in the wrong area, and I picked it up, and I'm like, what is this? And I turned around, and I saw all the letters. I had a Nutty Buddy in the middle of Radleys. I ended up getting it, and um, <coughs> i remember inviting all the kids in my neighborhood. Let's use the Ouija board. And a lot of people had no idea never used one before. And um, we had a lot of, I used, I used it a lot of times by myself, and I'm not about to say it at all because I used it by myself. All these horrible things happened, but things did happen. And and I attribute that to being, I think I was 13 years old at the time, and that's part of one of the phenomena with the Ouija boards. A lot of people are going, well, how do they work? Is it ghosts? Is it psychic? Is it... Little motus, you know, sensitive involuntary muscles in your fingertips that move it. It's all the way above. And in order of what the most common occurrences are, I think usually when people use a Ouija board, most of the time it's under frivolous circumstances. A party, people having fun. Unfortunately, sometimes there's alcohol involved. And people, slumber parties, mostly I think teenage girls use it more than teenage boys. and, you know, it's usually, they, they bring them out, oh, you know, is this one like me, and, and things like that. Um, secondary, if you have two people using it, they're more apt to fool around. You know, kids usually like to joke around the larger the crowd, the more foolery that goes on. In situations like that, I think it can be the involuntary muscle movements, where, you know, like breathing. You don't know you're breathing. You don't think about your heart beating happens. And in your fingertips, you know, there's very uh, little muscles that actually move it along. And usually you can tell that that's what's happening, is it's gibberish. You know, you say, hello, and it goes to V D A. okay, you know, no no rhyme, no reason. Then there's a third way it happens. Now, and this is what I thought might have been happening with us. Um, Usually when kids hit puberty, if they're psychic, and if they have any stuff like that, kicks in. Usually it manifests. Sometimes they may not pay attention to it. If someone is is going through puberty and and their their body's changing as well as their mental state, those psychic uh, abilities can kind of froth. They can just bubble up a little bit. Strange things can happen such as using the board and the planchette flying off the board. Or uh, getting answers to questions right. Now we're going to get into the, the last area where people become afraid of Ouija. That's the spirit communication aspect of it, which I think is the least most thing that happens. You know, people use Ouija boys, There's a lot of things that happen that aren't, have nothing to do with spirits. People are fooling around at a party. They may know something about someone. They push it to say something to scare that person. How do they know? Well, you know, what people, they, but I do believe, and this is where caution really has to come into play, that if you do go into a hot spot such as you know haunted house, haunted home. Um, you can initiate spirit contact. Now, is this the best form of spirit contact? No. There's far more better ways, mediums, psychics, you know, getting information for you. Um, there are definitely some, I do believe, may, may or may not believe it, there are definitely stories that do exist where the Ouija board wreaked havoc upon people and only to find out through calling paranormal investigators and that there was something in their house. Perhaps someone died, murder, bones in the basement. I mean, you, we've all heard the stories. In those situations, um, the Ouija board can kind of be like, as an example I like to use, back in the in the mid-80s, um, kind of when technology was starting to take off, and microprocessors started to have a big boom. I remember there was this product that used to be able to buy it, like BJ's or Kmart, and what it was was it was an emergency CB radio and you put it in a cigarette lighter, so if you break down, so you go, hello, I'm broken down, and on the cover of the blocks, I remember they had a, a fairly attractive woman, you know, in, with her leg out the car door, calling for help, and there's a big 18-wheeler coming behind her. that's a horrifying scenario. I <laughs> mean, I need help. Well, who's going to show up? <laughs> you know, And that's kind of what can happen with a Ouija board sometimes. If you're in an area that there's something residual there, you know, we all know hauntings. They're non-interactive. They're a recorded... That, that an imprint in the home and the, the walls. Um, I, I'm not saying a haunting can communicate with you through a Ouija board, but a poltergeist could. Or some kind of residual energy, perhaps there was a murder in the home, or there was a bad divorce and something was left behind. You know, people can pick up on that. Um, so you know you need to use caution and what kind of caution should you use is first and foremost, please don't start drinking at a party and start using a Ouija board because you don't know how it's going to affect someone. You don't know, you know, and I, I've heard so many, I use the term loosely, horror stories about situations like that, you know, it's not a good idea. The best way to use a Ouija board, and you can get answers from the spirit world. I really, truly believe you can. I'm not saying you're going to get the lottery numbers because I wouldn't be here if that was the case. <laughs> um, but I think you can get insight. Now, is a Ouija board a good choice to contact a loved one? Maybe. But who's to say it's your loved one coming through? Um, and only you would know the. You, you know, that people would say, well, I'll, I'll ask you questions that only my aunt, whoever would know. There are forces out there that I do believe exist that may know those things, whether they, they learn it from you. Now, how do you know you're having a bad experience? How do you know you're talking to something? Um, I'm not going to use the word evil because that's based. You can feel it. You can feel that feeling that mm, something's not right here. That spookiness starts to come in. You start to feel scared in your own home or scared in your own familiar surroundings. I, My recommendation is to stop the meeting. Now, you can go on the internet and you can find people will tell you all kinds of things you need to do to clear out the board. Rub the thing over goodbye, you know, you know. Chuck around three times and whip a chicken around. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> the, the, that's the thing with the internet. Everyone with the crazy idea can get it out to the masses, and unfortunately, people pick up on it. Um, I've, never, I've never had anything happen because I didn't end the session to take the planchette and go, goodbye, you know, to, to accentuate that or to overstress that. Yeah, I'm saying goodbye to you now. But the, the, the thing to do is, is to show, using a board and you feel that it's starting to get weird and you start to feel that creepy feeling that's hard to put the towards, but I think you all know what I'm talking about. Just that ominous feeling that, you know, you walk into a home sometimes or an old place and it's almost a smell, almost a deja vu type of weird feeling. You're like, something's not right here. Yeah, that would be a good sign to stop. Because um, if, if it was your, your dear aunt, I don't think she'd be wanting you to, to, to be feeling those things. Now, does that mean an evil spirit? No. It could be like a stranger in your house. If you sit here watching TV and some guy comes walking in and goes in your refrigerator and grabs something to drink, you be what the hell? Who are you? He says, he may not be in there to hurry, he just may be thirsty and crazy. the door is open. You know? I mean, you don't know who's going to come through. And that's the thing I like to caution people the most with. <clears throat> when you're using a Ouija board, you are opening that proverbial door. You are inviting something in. Just like Open it up your window, hey, anyone want to come in? You know, you don't want to do things like that. Um, you can, but you probably shouldn't. <clears throat> so, my that would be my advice that if you ever want to start now. I'm not trying to discourage it. Actually, yes, use one. Absolutely. If if you're curious about it, satisfy that curiosity. Don't go into it afraid. Don't bring to it feelings of, okay, before we put our fingers on this, we've got to be aware. There are bad things out there. You don't you don't have to have to you're going to attract it to you. Just use it with someone that you trust. With a close friend, a spouse, a sibling, or a relative. Now, I used to do some of these events, and I remember what would happen is, we didn't, we'd bring the boards out, and we'd pick random people out of the audience. Uh, you know, there'd be a couple sitting there, and we'd say, okay, that gentleman with that woman over there, and this woman over here with that lady over here, and it never worked. Now, it worked for me and my wife, we couldn't be here, today. she's got a respiratory infection, but. It would work for me and my wife because we've known each other since sixth grade, 40 years old now, so we've known each other our whole lives. we're married, so there's a there's a really good bond. And what happens is we use the board and people go, oh, you're pushing it, in. how come it doesn't work for anyone else, but it works for you? And it's hard to explain to people, that's because there's a trust between us, something you can't explain, but there's a connection between us. So if you do decide to use a Ouija board, make sure you use it with someone that you trust because if some kind of a message comes up that's kind of embarrassing, um, oh, and that brings me to how to get rid of a Weegee I've, that's probably, you know, I, I've heard that for years now. From what I, my wife, she's a witch. <coughs> she's always told me that salt neutralizes uh, uh, energy, uh, whether it's negative energy. And I remember reading a book um, it was by Stoker Hunt. It's called Ouija the most dangerous Games. Back in the, in the late 80s. And I've actually recommended this to people and they've told me it's worked and this is after they've said they've tried to get rid of the board. I mean, I've heard a lot of stories of people trying to get rid of Ouija boards and you would think, why don't you just go, you know, and throw it away, be done with it, or burn it. Now, I've heard people burning the boards
2: and I've never heard of
3: anything good coming of that. I've heard people burning the boards and then they think it's done, it's no problem, everything's fine, and then a year later, you know, they come home and faces are flying. Or oh, something happened. Something, you know, they, they say that the ominous, fearful feeling is intensified now. There's no board in the house. There's, there's not even a magic eight ball anywhere in the house. And people, you know, they say, oh, my God, it's horrible. And then they have to call on the ghost people, blah, 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 blah. you know, how that goes. Um, and then I've heard of people throwing it away and it appearing again. Now, oh, I don't have it with me. Shame on me for not bringing it. I do have a board. Uh, th- that was one of the ones I was sent to. It's one of these. Now, this board is from 1944. And uh, I have one of those boards where in the middle of it, I got in the mail. Um, oh, no, no. We, this, that was in a board gaming album. Um, It was a board. And over the course of 50, 60 years, this board, the board was put in the rafters of a barn. And the reason it was put there, there it was, it was two girls, two uh, two sisters, where one of them was... Um, you know, had some mental issues. um, And she used the board a lot. And whatever happened, the board was a conduit to her spiraling out of control when she ended up in in, in an institution. Um, You know, she had a lot of underlying issues. It wasn't the board that did it, but the board definitely pushed her along in that area. So the way it was told to me was the family, um, they... They try to they tried to get rid of the board a couple times and maybe the trashman threw it back in the Iowa. Uh, well, you know, hey, maybe I want this. You know, and they, they give and it would appear back in the Iowa uh, on, on the doorstep. So um, and they didn't burn it, and it's not because they, they didn't burn it because they knew of the dangers of burning a board. They just didn't do it. So they put it in the rafters of uh, the barn. You know, fifty years later, the, the youngest daughter she can moved back into this house now being in her 60s, 70s, 70 years old now. Um, when they were knocking the bomb down, the, uh, they found the board again. And in the center of the board, over the course of 60 years, you could see water was, would drip on the board, and there'd be a splash, it was pretty cool looking. And, and um, she got the board, brought it back into the house, oh, I remember this, my sister, and things started happening. And then finally the board, I think it, she ended up getting it to Bob, and Bob gave it to me. But I've had boards show up at my house with no, I don't know who, no return address. It's just
2: we don't want this,
3: <laughs> okay? Well, how do you know where I'm? <laughs> um, which is fine. I'll take it. Yeah, great. Thank you. Uh, you know, some of these boards, you know, collecting these boards. Some of them are worth a lot of money. I mean, when I started collecting these boards back in '88, '89, I get a couple responses when looking for boards. I'd go into an antique store and I'd say. You got any Ouija boards? And usually the response is, no, or get out. You would never have anything to here like that. I've i have gone on and well, you got any Ouija boards? No. And then found like a Mystic Soothsayer. I go, look, this is my, right. well, you said Ouija board. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> now, And I was given for $3. I was going to yard sales. How much was that? Uh, I don't know. $5. That board today is worth $500. Because of, and I think. I mean, and everyone notices this now. And maybe it's the reality TV, maybe it's the cable, whatever. But the spiritualism is definitely big. I mean, it's, it's a big surge now. I mean, I went to Salem, Mass. last week, and there were Ouija boards everywhere—hand-carved ones, painted ones, um, ones made of slate, ones made out of a trunk of a tree. And I remember back then calling like Laurie Cabot's uh, the witch store down there and asking if they have any Ouija boards. Don't sell things like that. <laughs> Shame on me, you know. <clears throat> but now it's you know it's kind of a bit of like you know I'll be walking to the store and I'll see all these Ouija boards and I'm like mm. I'm happy but I'm also a little bit oh. you know everyone's I got to get a new hobby maybe I should start collecting spatulas now because <laughs> <laughs> you know, everyone else is doing it now. I don't want to do it anymore but uh, yeah I I my first board was you know I I got it at an antique store. I, I mean, all I thought was pocket Brothers boards. I didn't know there was anything else. I just thought, you know, you drove into Salem, Mass, the Beverly Pocket Brothers, you know, and I knew from the movie The Exorcist and, and looking in an encyclopedia that pocket brothers had the, you know, had the, um, what's the word I'm looking for? The mm-hmm. mark. Mm-hmm. Yes, they had the mark on the Ouija board. But, and Bob talks about this a lot. The Ouija board was huge at one time. I mean, medicine, especially in like, it was outside of monopoly, um, especially during World War II. Why during World War II? And Ouija boards usually become very popular during wars. People thought they could use the Ouija board to find out what's going on with their loved ones overseas. They would think, if I could talk to my son on the Ouija board, that he's dead. You know, and it was I'm sad, but there was a big boom in it. And what happened was, the guy who owned these boards, owned the rights, the patents to William Fall. and there's a lot of controversy through the years with, you know, he took it from his brother, and they got it from someone else, but
2: we yeah.